Um, there's some passages that after you read, you kind of just want to reread several more times because of just how incredibly they, they may strike you. And this is one of those passages for me. Um, as you can tell, the, the topic of this uh, message and the topic of this psalm is the holiness of God, holiness. And this morning, that's what we're going to be focusing on, how um, when we understand God and his holiness, it should lead us to praise, exalt, and worship God. And, and that's, the, that's kind of the big idea, but this is really a difficult topic for us to wrap our minds around, the holiness of God, because there's so little in the world around us that is like a direct analogy or a connection to that. It's, it's so different, this holiness of God. I mean, we see around us examples of forgiveness. We see examples of mercy. We see things like this. But holiness, not like it's described here, not like it's described of God. I would say probably the closest thing, humanly speaking, would be interacting with like a famous person. They're, they're unique at least, right? And I, I don't know about you, if you've ever interacted with a famous person, my uh, story of interacting with a famous person is uh, pretty ridiculous. Um, I used to sell concessions at ball games, at baseball games and basketball games. And I remember one time really clearly, security guard calling me over to go in the area where you usually couldn't go and saying, Muhammad Ali wants to buy a, a cookie from you. That's what I sold, big cookies. And I remember just kind of like shaking, like, don't mess this up. This is one of the best, most incredible boxers, athletes of all time. Uh, you can't really mess it up. There's only like three choices, but you, know, you got to get this right, Noah. That was kind of like the thought in my mind. Um, I was in awe. But I remember thinking nearly immediately, wow. He's not looking so good. He's definitely not looking like he did in his prime when he was one of the champions. And I remember thinking um, his glory had faded so quickly. You see, everything on earth that we want to look at for even a moment as being unique or set apart or, or, or worthy of awe quickly falls apart. And that's how it was when I sold a cookie to Muhammad Ali. It, it very quickly lost its uniqueness and its specialness. Um, and so in this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at God. God who is holy, 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 as we just heard read from Isaiah. And that's going to be our focus. And so I want to pray and, and we'll jump right into verse 1. God, you are good. And you have given us this word so that we may understand you better, Lord. God, I pray that you would take away obstacles from our minds that may be distracting us right now. I pray that you would take away any barriers in our heart that would prevent us from receiving your word as we should. God, we, I pray that you might cause your word to challenge us where we might need to be challenged, to encourage us where we might need encouragement. And I pray that more than anything, we may submit ourselves to your word. In your name I pray, amen. So if you have a Bible, please keep it open to uh, Psalm 99. We're going to be looking at verse 1. Verse 1 says this. I'm just going to reread it. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. 
He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. So what's the first thing that this psalm focuses on? It focuses on the Lord. And this word Lord actually comes from the word Jehovah, which you'll remember was first used way back when Moses sees the burning bush that is not consumed. And God says to go back and tell these people that have been in slavery for 400 years that I will redeem them. And he says, who shall I say, who shall I say sent me? And what does God say? Jehovah, I am the pre-existing, always existing one. This is the personal name that God gives to Moses to say, I am going to reinstate a personal relationship to redeem my people from slavery. And so this name, Jehovah, stands in stark contrast to the little g gods that had been worshipped in Egypt and in Rounding peoples around Israel and that so many of them had fallen into worship also because this Jehovah, this Lord who reigns, is personal. He draws close. He redeems. This is the God that reigns that our psalmist starts with. The Lord reigns. Jehovah, I am. And this is so essential that we understand this, this basic fact that the Lord reigns. Because all sin traces back to wanting something else to reign instead of God. Think about it for a minute. Our fallen nature is constantly seeking to find God's substitutes to reign in our lives, to put them on the throne Worship them instead of God. I mean, think for, think for just a moment. Why do we lie? Why are we tempted to lie? Isn't it because our reputation or our appearance has taken the throne and began to reign in our lives? And so that gives us this attitude that says, well, maybe it's okay to lie. Why does someone fall into a sexual sin? Isn't it because they have an inordinate, out-of-place desire that has begun to reign in their life? Go back to the Garden of Eden. Why did Adam and Eve first sin? They wanted to be equal with God. They wanted to reign with God. That was the initial temptation, right? And, and what was the root that caused Satan to be cast from heaven in the first place? Wanting to reign along with God. So all sin finds a connection with us wanting to be in charge, us wanting to reign over our lives instead of God. And so this phrase, the Lord reigns in verse 1, is so essential to the Christian life. It's part of our initial confession of faith when we cry out, Jesus, you ha I, I, I need you to be my Savior and my Lord to reign. That's our initial confession. And it needs to be part of our everyday process of sanctification, breaking idols that want to reign in our life and returning God to his rightful place to reign over our lives. So this verse tells us two things in verse 1. It says, the Lord reigns. And what else does it say he's doing? He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And so in this one verse, 
we see an incredibly important characteristic of God, that he is both transcendent and imminent. He is both outside us, beyond our comprehension, reigning over all things in ways we will never understand. And yet he has also chosen to draw close to us, imminent and chosen to walk in fellowship with us. So when we see that phrase, the Lord reigns, that points us to his transcendence. He is Lord of all creation. He works all things perfectly in order to make his will accomplished. He is beyond our understanding. Look, um, my job is I, I get to be a junior high science teacher, and so that's about the level of science that I can understand because um, I can teach six eighth grade when we get into high school that gets a little too complicated for me and even in the sixth grade level of science that I get to teach the kids when we start talking about atoms the smallest thing really quickly I have to tell the kids but this is all we understand there's more to it that we don't understand in the smallest parts of our universe and then when we study galaxies and nebulas and supernovas and these enormous things that I have to say the same thing. Well, this is what we think. It's so far away and it's so big, we don't really understand the forces of nature that are at work in our universe. And so my point with that is, God does understand and he reigns over all of it. Every atom, every molecule, every, every part of our universe. God is completely transcendent so that phrase, God reigns, should point us to that. Um, and then it says, but he also sits enthroned on the cherubim. That speaks of imminence, of drawing close. You'll remember the cherubim were found on the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant was made, there were many decorations. And so the, the cherubim were on the very lid of that. And so this was the centerpiece of the tabernacle and later of the temple. And so the Ark of the Covenant served as a visual reminder that God has chosen to walk in fellowship with his people. It was like a, a visual, tangible, the high priest could actually walk in and touch. This is imagery that shows us that God is not only transcendent, he's also imminent. He also draws near. He, always, he also seeks relationship. And it is absolutely vital that we hold both sides at the same time. That we understand God is transcendent, above reigning, and that he's also imminent in drawing close. Because what happens if we get one of those perspectives out of focus, it throws everything out of perspective. For example, if I were to focus only on God's transcendence, I would forget that this God of the universe also tells us as believers to pray to him as Abba Father. That should like blow our minds that this transcendent God has said, call me daddy. That's the word Abba Father. I, as a dad myself, I know when my own kids, they fall over and they cry out, daddy, what do I do? I run, I come and I pick them up. In the middle of the night when they cry out in a nightmare. I, I just come and sit by them and, and hold them. It's okay. I'm here. I'm right here. That's the term. That's the image that God invites us to think about of himself. 
So if we only focus on God's transcendence, the, the danger is that God becomes distant and unapproachable. But on the other hand, if we only emphasize God's imminence, we are in a very real danger of treating God and his commands too lightly and not taking him as seriously as we should. Now, growing up, I had a fairly strict father. Um, and I can remember being at a friend's house, you know, playing video games or whatever, uh, in a situation where mom or dad, I can't remember exactly, would come in and say something simple like, hey, so-and-so, can you take out the trash before you finish watching that movie? And I can remember a few of my friends being sort of flippant with their mom or dad and saying something like, well, it's your garbage too, or I'll get to it when I have a chance. And I remember myself like physically shaking for them, like, oh my goodness. Well, this is a good friend. I knew them for a while. This is over now. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, in the movies, I see people get thrown out the window and it looks interesting. I'm going to see it in real life because this is not going to end well. Because in, if that would have happened in my house, it would not have gone well. And, and we've all experienced what it's like to be in the supermarket line and hear kids talking to their parents in a way that does not take them seriously. And it's not a pleasant thing to watch, is it? There's a very real danger in not taking God seriously. And if we're honest, if we were to, to take a survey of kind of America or even the Christian world in America, which one would you say is a greater risk for us today? I would say we tend to lean into the idea that God is imminent only and not as transcendent as the scriptures reveal him to be. In fact, if you read verse 1 and you see the people's trembling and the earth quaking and you think, huh, that shouldn't be, then that could be an indicator that you perhaps are not seeing God as transcendent as he truly is in the scriptures. And so let's look at this first thing that is related, the first response that is related to God and his transcendence and imminence. What does it say in verse 1? It says, The Lord reigns and the people, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let, let the earth quake. The peoples tremble, the earth this is the most common re response we see in the Bible when an angel appears to people. What do they do? They tremble. They fall down on the ground. Half the time they try to worship the angel and the angel has to pick them up and say, don't worship me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a servant. That's like the most common response. And these are just servants that have stood in the presence of God. They're not God himself. And so we just heard from Isaiah 6. I want to I stop and look at Isaiah 6 also and see the comparison. If you have a Bible, keep your hand in, in Psalm 99. Flip over a little bit to Isaiah 6 because what we see here is, is a pattern. The same sort of pattern that we see, the same sort of response that we see in, in Psalm 99, we see in Isaiah 6. So you heard it already in worship. Let's hear it one more time just for, for emphasis. And I want to just see the comparison here. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 says this, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up in the train or hem of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, these sort of angels. 
Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And, with, um, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I want us to notice, brothers and sisters, what the transcendent holiness of God produces. In verse 5, Isaiah, a prophet of prophets, a holy man during this time period of Israel, if ever there was a holy man, he is trembling in fear at the mere hem of God's glory that has filled the tabernacle, that has filled the temple, excuse me. Let that sink in for a minute. We're talking about the smallest thread, the hem, the train, the hem of God's glory. And what does that tiniest portion do? It fills up the entire temple. It causes Isaiah to literally say, I'm done for, I'm ruined. In Hebrew, he's saying, I'm coming apart at the seams. Like picture a baseball, coming apart at the seams. It causes the posts and foundations of the temple to tremble. Just like in verse 1 of Psalm 99, the earth quakes, the whole earth quakes before the Lord. Look, don't miss that all of creation, even inanimate objects, we're talking pillars and posts and the earth itself, shakes in the presence of God. And notice that this let the people tremble of verse 1 of Psalm 99 and Isaiah's cry in verse 5 of I am ruined is a good and right response to the holiness of God. God does not say, whoa, 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 Israel, Isaiah, you're not so bad. You know, don't worry about it. You know, sin, the sin that you've committed is definitely not as bad as some other people I have on my list. God doesn't say that. He doesn't argue that Isaiah should be trembling. And here in verse 1 of Psalm 99, the trembling of all the peoples of earth is a right response. And the only thing, don't miss this, the only thing that allows Isaiah or us to remain before such a holy God is that God takes away our iniquity and covers over our sin and forgives us. That's what it says in Isaiah 6-7. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. In Psalm 99-8, you are a forgiving God to them. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. You can't do anything to be made right before a perfectly holy God on your own account. So what does God do? He does it for you. 
He sends his perfect son to pay the payment in our place so that we can have a covering over of our sin and forgiveness. And so we have to see that as amazing as forgiveness is, it's only in light of God's holiness that we can understand the depths of this forgiveness. And that's the first quality here in verse 1 of Psalm 99. That's the first quality of God that the psalmist connects with our impulse to praise God. What is it? It's His holiness. We praise God because of His holiness. This is the root cause of this psalmist calling all peoples praise God. This is the fuel for their praise. So we need to really understand what God's holiness means. What does God's holiness mean? God's holiness literally means to be set apart or utterly unique. That's what holiness means. And so you've probably heard this before, but I want to just remind you that this is the only characteristic of God, the holiness of God, that is repeated three times in a row in the Bible, like we just saw in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. And it's amazing that, yes, even though God is loving, even though God is forgiving and merciful, none of these other characteristics are repeated three times in a row for emphasis, like we see of God's holiness. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Psalm 99, do you know how many times God is pointed out as being holy? Three times. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 9. God is holy. And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's some sort of poetic device to kind of make things rhyme. I think the psalmist is drawing our attention. This is a key attribute of God. You have to understand this if you are to understand God. In Hebrew writing, it's very rare to have an attribute or, or something repeated two times in a row. That's pretty rare. It's very rare to have it repeated three times. This is the only attribute that's repeated three times. It's like God saying, this is essential, this is essential, this is essential. Attention, attention, attention. So we need to understand what holiness is if we are to understand who God is. And really, we could take many Sundays to unpack what God's holiness means for us throughout the scriptures, but I want to just stay in Psalm 99, and I want to just let us see how God's holiness is connected in verse 4, directly connected with his justice and equity. Equity is another word for fairness. So holiness is, is connected to his justice and his equity. Verse 4, what does it say? Take a look at verse 4 with me. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Now, we all love justice, right? We all love justice. Not really. I don't think so. Not if we think about it. I mean, I mean we love it when it applies to others or in an abstract kind of like, America should be just, like just kind of out there idea. But justice, when it comes down to personal reality, I don't think we actually lo love it like the Lord loves it. Let me just give you an example. I remember when I was in grade school, 
coming to my mom with blood in my mouth and a tooth in my hand saying, my brother knocked my tooth out. He needs what? Justice. Drop the hammer. Bring justice. I'm bleeding. This is going to be good. I mean, uh, I, I, like the, the, the deck is stacked. Things are going to go in my favor. And I remember my mom, of course she knew me like mothers do, saying, you know, I'm sorry that happened. What, what did you do? Did you do anything to antagonize him? I was the younger brother. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So after a, a bit, it, it comes out that I had been constantly frustrating and picking on until my brother just kind of snapped and popped me. Lost my tooth. I did not come to my mom saying, Mom, justice means I get punished along with my brother. Can you please bring justice on both of us? We both deserve a punishment because we've both done wrong. I didn't do that. And I don't think many of you did that either when you were younger. And those of you who are parents, I don't think many of your children do that either. Naturally, we love justice when we don't see ourselves as guilty. When we realize we're guilty, what we love more than anything is mercy. We love mercy. And so, do you see how this all connects to the gospel? In God's transcendent holiness, we should be destroyed by the justice of God because we are all guilty. The sentence proclaimed on all of us is sinful, guilty. We should all be like coming undone, trembling like we've seen here. In God's transcendent, perfect justice, that's not good news. Romans 6.23 starts out how? For the wages of sin is death. Wages are something you work for. We are actively working to earn death. And that's what makes the second part of that verse so incredible because Jesus doesn't just leave us in the middle of that just reality, that fair judgment of guilty. What is, how does that verse continue? For the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In God's imminence, in His drawing near to us, we should be overwhelmed by God's covering over of our sin in complete forgiveness and how this means that the perfect, just, fair wrath of God has been fully satisfied in Christ. And not only that, Christ's righteousness has been counted as ours. Like put into our bank account. That's the hinge of the entire gospel. Some people call it the great exchange. Which Jesus takes our sin. He counts it as his. He takes the punishment and he clothes us in his righteousness. And so when we read the might of the king loves justice, our hearts need to cling to the wonder of the gospel. 
And when we hear this gospel, this good news, this great exchange, there's always two things that are happening. For believers, for us, this is a fresh reminder of God's grace, and it should serve as fuel for us to desire to be prayerful, to walk in obedience, to praise God with our entire life. And that's what we're going to look at in just a minute, the right response to understanding this. But at the same time, this good news is always a call for unbelievers to trust in Christ. So friend, if you are here today, or I know a lot of people aren't able to be here listening online, and you have not trusted in the work of Jesus to save you, oh, how I pray that you might do so now, right now. Because the only hope of God's perfect justice against your sin and my sin is Christ's payment in our place. That's the only remedy. So won't you come to Christ? And so that's the, the sort of first focus, the first half of our, our focus on this psalm this morning focusing on God, how he's holy, how he's transcendent beyond us and yet imminent, loving justice, and how his justice is satisfied in Christ. And, and now I want to just spend the last half kind of focusing on, on our right response to understanding this holiness. What does that mean for us? So the first thing I want us to see is that God's holiness should fuel a prayerfulness in our lives. It should drive us to prayer. We see this in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. How often do we forget how incredible it is that we have full access to the throne of grace? That it does not bring condemnation, but rather grace. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. The fact that a holy God, a just God, looks on us as believers as completely acceptable because of Jesus' righteousness counted as ours should cause us to have a prayer-saturated life. We should be like Moses and Aaron and Samuel here in verse 6, calling on the Lord continually. And I know all too often in my own life how much I forget this privilege that we have as believers to call upon his name and to rest in the fact that we have a God that answers us. And so, Lord, even now I pray, let us as a church not overlook this first and right response to understanding God's holiness to have lives that are marked by prayer. May your holiness, God, fuel in us a hunger to call out to you, Lord, because we are certain you, hung, you answer us. You have drawn near to us. That's the first one. God's holiness should fuel prayerfulness. Second, God's holiness should drive us to obedience. Look at verse 7. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them, and what did they do? They kept his testimony and the statute that he gave them. This is to say a right understanding of God's holiness should make us desire to obey him. 
Not because we're worried about being cast out if we fail. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But rather, as Romans 12, 1 tells us, in view of God's mercy, let us offer our lives as living sacrifices. The mercy of God, if rightly understood, will not allow us to treat it with contempt as if it's some sort of excuse, like, well, he's just going to keep forgiving me. I might as well sin so that grace can abound. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. But rather, the mercy of God should become a compelling conviction that takes root in my life that says, Christ is worthy. Look at all he's done. He's worthy of my obedience. What else would I want to do in response to all this grace I've been given? But don't miss the end of verse 8. It says in verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. What the psalmist is saying is if the positive motivation of God's mercy isn't enough to motivate you, well, look, there's also the negative motivation of God's wrath, of God's avenging. If you sin, I want to be clear, when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. That's not the sort of avenging that he's talking about here. He's talking about you will face the natural consequences of your sin when you sin. Just think of Moses. He's mentioned here in verse 6. What happened when he did not obey God, when God said, speak to the rock, and he said, I think I want to strike the rock. What happened when he disobeyed? And for a lot of us, we'd say, that's so minor. He wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land because of the consequence, natural consequence of his sin. If I were to be negligent in my job, just sort of show up late, um, yeah, I'll get to that whenever I get a chance, whatever. What would be the natural consequence of that sin? I'd get fired. If I were to drive recklessly down Haleakala Highway, 100 miles an hour, what would be a natural consequence of that sin? I'd either get a ticket or I'd probably get in an accident and people would get hurt. Natural consequence of choosing to, ne to neglect God and his word is you start to feel more and more distant from God. So the blessings of God serve to encourage us, keep going, there's life, there's life in abundance, follow God, obey God. And the warnings of God are like signposts that say wrong way, danger ahead, stop, turn around. And so God in his goodness gives us both, doesn't he? He gives us encouragement, keep running hard after the prize that has been set before you, and he gives warnings of what's going to happen if you neglect to obey. They're both good, and they're both necessary. Third, God's holiness should drive us to praise his great and awesome name. Look at verse 3. Let them praise your awesome name, holy is he. So first we, we have to remind ourselves, who is he referring to when it's saying, let them praise? Who is he talking to? Let's go back one verse, verse 2. Remember, he's talking to all the peoples, not just believers. So what that means is, in a very real sense, when we praise God, it's doing two things. It's both worshipful, vertical, me and God. I'm praising God. And it's also, at the same time, 
horizontal. It's also me explaining the goodness of God, the worth of God to be praised to the people around us. Praising God does both. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, don't miss this, the praise not only merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. So what do I mean when I say that a praise of God is always also a call to unbelievers to join with us? I mean when our praise of God overflows in our life, in our everyday life of what we say and we do, unbelievers will see this and be drawn to investigate. What is this that is so praiseworthy in the life of this person? And when someone in the world begins to praise their favorite sport or their favorite athlete or their TV show or whatever fill-in-the-blank thing that they tend to praise, we as believers have a sure confidence of saying, Jesus is better. I have something even more worthy of praise than what, what you're praising right now. I have more to praise in my God than all the world could offer. Won't you come? Won't you taste? Won't you see? Won't you see what is so worthy of praise in my God? We praise what we delight in, and in voicing that praise, we will be inviting others to join us. That's why our praise is so important. Now, as true as that is, in this verse, don't lose track of the rest of the sentence. What does it say? Let them, remember all the peoples, praise you, praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. So when it says praise your great and awesome name, remember we must praise God as he truly is, as he's revealed in scriptures, not as we prefer him to be, and definitely not as our culture is saying he should be at this particular moment. So what does great and awesome mean when we're praising him? Great carries the idea of resounding through the universe. Great. Psalm 19.1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Great is his name. Holy is he. It's the idea of the whole universe is filled up. Every molecule, every atom, every galaxy, every star is filled up, overflowing with the unique greatness of God. Let the peoples praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. That's the image we need to have in mind. But notice, great and awesome name. You know this word awesome is also translated in many Bibles as terrible. Your great and terrible name it could be translated. Or your great and awe-inspiring name is another way to translate it. So you might struggle with the idea. You might not have a problem saying God is great, God is 
filling up the universe with his greatness, but terrible? Like causing my knees to shake? That, that's how God's described here? If that's true, it could point to in, in that we're unbalanced in understanding God and his transcendence and his imminence. Because don't forget where this whole thing starts in verse 1. What does it say our right response to God should be? To tremble. Let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. The last one, the last response, fourth, I think these go together. Our fourth response to understanding God's holiness is exalting God and worshiping God. Look at verse 5 and verse 9. They're almost exactly the same. There's just a little difference. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God. Our Lord our God. Verse 5, worship at his footstool. Verse 9, and worship at his holy mountain. Verse 5, holy is he. Verse 9, the Lord our God is holy. So you could say exalting God and worshiping God are really two sides of the same coin. Exalting God worshiping God. And it's fair to say you can't do one without doing the other. They go together. And so when we lift God up, we exalt him. We are raising his name up as worthy. And when we worship God, we are bowing ourselves down. You see how those work together? We lift God up and we bow ourselves down. They are related because when we praise God, our praise is going to naturally lift God up. He's worthy. Focus your attention on him, and it's naturally going to humble ourselves and bow ourselves down in worship. One commentary puts it this way. It's a fair test of all worship, meaning like praise and gathering together, all worship and doctrine or teaching, if we can ascertain whether it exalts God. What's the end result? That means the end goal of this, this morning as we gather together to, to praise God and, and singing, as we gather together to look at his word and submit to his word, if the end goal does not cause us to walk away and say, wow, God is holy. God is bigger than my mind can comprehend. God is closer than anybody else in the world. He's chosen to forgive me. If we don't walk away with that, then, then something's gone wrong. The, I, I've kind of thrown out a couple big words. My, my goal is not for you to walk away and say, oh, I understand what transcendence means. I understand what imminence means. I understand what holiness means. If, if those concepts don't fuel in you a desire to praise God, then, then they're not helpful. You know, besides Isaiah 6, the only place that I could find in the Bible that elevates God, holy, 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 to the three times, the only other place, do you know where it is? I heard somebody. Revelation. It's no coincidence, I think, that this is linked to an eternal praise and worship of God. We get like this snapshot, this little preview of heaven in Revelations 4, 8 through 11. If you have a Bible, look at it with me. Revelations 4, 8 through 11. What does it say? 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and are full of eyes and all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their, their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is so utterly unique, so set apart, so holy, 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 that Revelation tells us we will spend eternity without ceasing, joining with the saints and the angels in a praise of the worthiness of God alone to receive, to receive glory and worship forever. Now, I want to just conclude by addressing maybe three groups of people who might be listening to this this morning. First, friend, if you are here and you have never given Christ lordship of your life, You've never said, I want God to reign in my life. How I pray that this utterly unique God, this holy, holy God that we've been focusing our attention on this morning, that we've been praising this morning, that he might become personal and imminent close to you right now. I pray that you might give up whatever you have allowed to reign in your life instead of God. I pray that you accept Christ's payment for your sins so that the holiness of God does not mean wrath poured out on sinners, but that it could mean full acceptance for you as well, that you might trust in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Next, I, I'd like to just talk to you briefly. If you're here, fellow saint, and you hear the word of God, and you feel a convicting that's saying, I think I've been drifting. I think I've been on cruise control for this last week or season. Look, Revelation is giving us this, this insight. This is what eternity is about. Praising, worshiping God. Our attention focused on God. And so I just want to ask you, what is that obstacle that might be in your life that's keeping you right now from praising, exalting, and worshiping God in your everyday interactions? What idol, we could say, is robbing your attention of this God who is holy? Because here's the thing, listen, I'm almost done, just listen. It's possible for you to hear this message this morning and even maybe nod your head and underline some things in your Bible and go out and make none of the changes that need to be made. It's possible to say, yes, I see in my mind I need to praise God in my life, but you know, I just have this one project to finish. I just have this one show that I'm binging on right now, and I'm going to finish that, and then I'm going to get to the focus where it needs to get. 
I just have this one feed that I'm looking at. I just have this whatever obstacle might be there. And so I pray that this passage could serve as a reminder. Put away the distractions. Praise God anew today. Be encouraged. Dive into the Word. Look at how glorious our God is and how wondrous His salvation truly is. Be renewed. Be reminded how, how awesome and worthy our God is. And finally, maybe you are right now in that sweet spot in life where you are digging into the Word, you are using God's Word to ignite just a, a desire to worship God, and maybe you were, have been singing in a fresh way of God's goodness and His worth, and so I wanted to say, excellent, keep it up. How many of Paul's letters have that idea, keep running? You're doing good, keep it up. So I want to encourage you, keep it up. And, and I want to kind of warn you, one of the most helpful things that I ever heard was, was when I read from a, a great theologian that, that warns, our hearts are idol factories. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Our hearts are idol factories, which means if you're in that sweet spot right now where you have identified this idol in your life and you've broken it and let, say, God, I need you to reign in my life, we don't want to like go on cruise control now because what's our heart going to manufacture in a very short time a new idol to try to take the place of that um and so i want to pray that we all might have a habit of each day renewing our minds in, in the word and submitting ourselves to this reality that God is worthy of praise. Let my whole life show that he is worthy of praise. He is holy, holy, holy. Let me just end by rereading verse 11 of Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God, let's Let's pray to this God. God, you are, you are holy. You are holy. You are beyond our understanding. You dwell in unapproachable light. There is so much about you and your ways that we will never come close to understanding, and yet you have chosen to draw near to us. Oh, God. Let us be a people that are renewed daily with a fresh sense of awe and wonder and that our lips might ever be singing your praise, that our, our lives might be worshiping you as reigning on the throne in, in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.